Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Lawrence, who is the partner at Baker & McKinsey in the Bay Area in California. And we're going to talk about the M&A legal aspects or any advice that uh, you can get from a, from a partner at Bacon McKinsey for fintech founders or potential buyers in the space. Let's find out. And uh, also why it takes much longer to go public or do you need to go public anymore? How do you get liquidity? Those sort of things. Um, so I'm very keen to talk to Lawrence because he's also worked in the crypto space, tech space, fintech space as well. So lots to uh, learn from Lawrence. Uh, very curious to hear more. So how are you today, Lawrence? Great, great. Thanks very much for having me today, Rudy. Um, yeah, you're right. I'm currently an M&A partner in Baker McKenzie's Palo Alto office. My practice is focused on public and private M&A transactions, primarily in the technology sector. Uh, I spent my entire legal career out here in Silicon Valley working with technology companies, both large and small, uh, on a variety of complex and sophisticated corporate and strategic transactions. And you're absolutely right. Prior to joining Baker McKenzie, I was in-house counsel at a cryptocurrency company called Coinbase, uh, where I was the lead attorney on M&A ventures and strategic transactions. Uh, especially glad to be speaking with you today. Uh, work with a number of clients in the fintech sector, so so looking forward to to chatting. Right. So let's explain it a little bit because, of course, Baker McKinsey is a top class firm, a large uh, law firm, and uh, a lot of the law firms only recently discovered fintech because the, obviously the sectors and the companies and the tickets had to grow. Right. So what's your approach? What's your firm's approach towards advising fintech? What do you focus on? As you said, M and A, but also other matters and and within that space, do you need to be a scale-up so, so that you can work with Baker McKinsey or you rather work with incumbents who are trying to acquire potential startups in the space? So as a firm, we really approach our fintech clients from a global perspective. Uh, we regularly mm-hmm. advise fintech companies on cross-border transactions and other global expansion efforts, providing advice both domestically here in the U.S. and throughout Europe and Asia. Working with fintech companies currently really requires marshalling all of the firm's expertise in M&A, intellectual property, data privacy, and regulatory matters. So as you're probably well aware, many of the largest companies in the fintech space are rapidly expanding, uh, and they're using a combination of strategic acquisitions and organic growth to do so. The rapid expansion could have significant effects on the company's regulatory risk and compliance profile. And overall business and operations strategy. So that's really where we come in. Uh, For example, I just recently represented a a recently IPO'd fintech company on an acquisition in Canada, which served as a springboard for their entry into the Canadian market. And I'm currently working with another large fintech company on its expansion efforts into Europe. In both of these examples, a significant amount of effort has to be invested at the outset 
to really ensure that we understand the regulatory implications of the target's jurisdiction, uh, as well as other global considerations in order to help our clients navigate any potential pitfalls. Um, and you know, we work with smaller companies as they're looking to scale up. We will work with incumbents as they're looking to make acquisitions. We also work with traditional financial institutions as they're looking at fintech targets and looking to digitize their offering. What is specific about fintech m and Because when I worked in banks, uh, we had FIG team, right, which is financial institutions, you know, banks and insurance companies. We had the technology M&A. We didn't have a fintech per se back then, mm-hmm. right? So what's specific? I mean, obviously already FIG versus the rest of the other industries is quite specific because it's regulated. That's the main main part. And of course, you know, when you look at the pitch books, when I started in consumer, it was a lot about pictures because sometimes we didn't have the numbers or too many numbers. <laughs> right. And then when you went to the FIG team, it was like, oh my God, this is just tables, right? You know, a bunch of numbers all the time. But then, you know, once I moved to FIG, I, I got used to it. And I found consumer, frankly, a little bit simple. So what is what is the specific about fintech M&A and also any sort of high-level, high-impact lessons learned you could share? Fintech companies really straddle both uh, the technology company side and the financial institutions, the regulated institution side. Fintech M&A really raises issues in both areas, uh, both on the IP side as well as on the regulatory side. Um, I would say one of the biggest differences between M&A and the fintech sector versus M&A of any other type of technology company really comes down to the regulatory aspects. Mm -hmm. In many instances in the space as well, because it's a younger space, uh, when the target company is a smaller fintech company and the buyer is a larger public or soon to be public company, the target's regulatory compliance function will usually not be as well-developed as the buyers. Also, the target may have different standards or interpretations of applicable rules and regulations, particularly since the development and application of the fintech regulatory regime is quite complicated and can vary a great deal from one jurisdiction to another. When the buyer is much larger and under greater scrutiny, this could pose real challenges for the buyer if certain issues aren't properly addressed. This is a long way of saying that the due diligence exercise from a regulatory perspective is extremely critical in these types of deals. And when issues are discovered, as they oftentimes are, ensuring that you apply the proper fix to these issues is important from a risk allocation perspective. Sometimes you may require certain fixes to be put in place before you actually close the transaction. Other times you might be willing to fix the issues after the closing, but ensuring that the cost of implementing those fixes are borne by the sellers or the seller shareholders. Usually it's a combination or a mix of both of these strategies and negotiating this construct oftentimes becomes a hotly contested issue over the course of the transaction. Right. So it sounds like the two or three main things that you should look out for is obviously, well, I mean, on a technical side, does the technology work? But from a legal standpoint, you know, who has the IP, right? So it, it doesn't belong to the employees. There are no debates about that or patents, things like this, I guess, right? So that's the, the, uh, the technology slash legal part. And then it's regulated industry. So you said it very politely. Some people have different views what rules apply to them, right? And sometimes right. the regulations are behind a little bit in terms of innovation. So... Um, so I, I understand that very clearly, basically IP and the regulation. Otherwise, obviously, 
very numbers driven business, right? It's not about building. Well, I mean, it's about building a nice experience, but it's intangible. Yeah, and, and I'll just add to that too. Uh, I, I think, and it's been top of mind for many companies uh, of late, obviously, which is data security. Um, extremely important for fintech companies, particularly since so many companies in this space uh, have the potential to have significant amounts of customer information, merchant information, things like credit cards and things like that. So this is also a key part of the due diligence exercise and a key area of focus. Right. Understood. Understood. And uh, well, obviously, anybody who's been paying attention and uh, looking at the startups or not only the fintechs and whether that's in America or somewhere else has noticed that the average time to go public has increased tremendously in the last you know, 10, 10 years or 20 years, right? As, as, fintechs and, as fintechs grow larger and more mature, what are your views on liquidity and exit options for these companies? Yeah, absolutely. IPO times have grown longer. Uh, companies are staying private much longer than maybe they did 15 or 20 years ago. But you know, we've seen a number of fintech IPOs either be announced or completed recently, including, for example, a firm, uh, a firm's recently completed IPO. A firm is a buy now, pay later platform uh, in the United States, uh, and Coinbase also announced an upcoming IPO. So I, I think fintech companies actually have a myriad of options when it comes to liquidity and exit. So in addition to IPOs, for example, there have also been a number of SPACs that have been announced in the space, such as for SoFi and Pioneer. I, I think there will be additional fintechs potentially announcing IPO plans in the very near future. There's so many of them uh, in the United States that are in that sweet spot. They're, they're very large um, and they're just about ready to go public. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the SPAC boom continues in the fintech space as well. So I think, from my perspective, liquidity and exit options are are great for fintechs. Uh, for the large ones, they can tap the public markets. And then for the smaller ones, you now have large buyers with a lot of liquidity in the market that are looking to uh, expand their product offerings, expand geographically, um, acquire up and down the supply and value chain. So so I, I'm I'm quite bullish on the liquidity options for the fintech companies. All right, that's good news. Now, let's try to dissect, you know, which sectors, right? Because some people thought, okay, when they heard first time, the first time they heard the word fintech was like, well, that's just another payments app or P2P lending or what have you. And these were probably the first areas where fintech grew. But now fintech is so much larger, right? Whether that also includes blockchain or crypto, digital assets or investments areas, all kinds of solutions and applications. So do you think, well, first of all, on the payments and the lending side, do you think that that initial drive towards those subsectors has attracted maybe too many players and we're going to witness a significant consolidation wave or 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 not and we are where we are and that's just, this is how it's going to be for a while? I do think there will be a consolidation wave, particularly in payments and lending. I think the largest players in both of these spaces are now in very strong positions to consolidate and make acquisitions. What's really exciting to me too is how these large players will look to partner with other companies in order to provide new services. So for example, last summer, a firm announced a partnership with Shopify, uh, which is an extremely exciting development in my view in the e-commerce and the lending worlds, bringing both of those worlds together. 
Um, as, as these large payments and lending companies look for new ways to compete and expand their offerings, I think we'll start to see more and more interesting partnerships like that with other companies, as well as new products offered to customers and merchants coming out of these partnerships. Um, as an aside, I think this development is leading to what people are calling now uh, embedded finance, a one-stop shop for con consumers for all of their retail and financial services needs. Um, it, it's quite an exciting development. So I, I think that the large players are well positioned to consolidate the market and really uh, shift how people interact with uh, and conduct their financial transactions online. Great. Well, it sounds like you're going to be busy in the Bay Area office then, right? <laughs> sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, good. I mean, you also mentioned the word SPAC, right? I mean, let's level set and define it uh, potent, uh, for everybody. And obviously, it has become a favorite buzzword of the day um, uh, lately. Um, well, have you witnessed, I mean, you already mentioned some examples, but have you witnessed uh, any specific fintech-focused SPACs and also... Let's think about it. How does that work if you step back? Because also when you had private equity companies setting up financials or fintech practices uh, at first, then often they realized like, well, you know, we can only do payments. It wasn't just because these were the first and biggest fintechs, but also because they were regulatory light, right? And of course, these buyers, they don't have time to uh, between signing and closing or between between an idea and signing to take a year of discussions and you know talking to regulators in 15 countries and all that so it it took it took a long time so only a few of them are still at it right they probably developed some knowledge and they can do it really quickly and well and uh, they have connections to or uh, through portfolio companies to regulators as well but what about the the specs right because you you know you raise money to buy something but uh, how long can you just be sitting on the money, basically? That's really a long-winded what I was going for. Yeah, so um, absolutely. There, there have been announced a number of SPACs in the fintech space. I think there will continue to be uh, SPACs in the fintech space. And like you said, to the level said, it's a special purpose acquisition company. Um, it's basically, a people call it a blank check company. It's a shell corporation that's listed publicly. Um, and and it's listed for the purpose of acquiring a private company, and and through that process, um, acting as a springboard to to for that private company to tap the public markets. Um, I think that uh, with any new trend in the financial space, uh, it always draws the eyes of the regulators, um, and with that potential new enforcement. But with that being said, I, I do think that. Um, the use of SPACs is going to continue. Um, and specifically, the pace of SPACs so far in 2021 is far outpacing uh, where things were at this time last year. And I expect that acceleration to probably continue in the near term. Um, in terms of the issues that you raise around um, you know, how long a SPAC is sitting out there uh, looking for targets, it really depends on the term uh, of that SPAC. Um, uh, oftentimes you see something around 18 months, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what, what really um, is important is the fact that it's allowing uh, large private companies, both fintech and outside of fintech, uh, another method of tapping the public market. Because uh, as you can imagine, the process of going public um, and preparing the, the documentation necessary and even the preparation leading to that making sure your internal controls are up to speed 
um, and compliant, uh, things like that. I think that takes a significant amount of energy and attention from the executive team for a lot of these large companies. Um, and it's a year long process. And so the SPAC is offering folks a faster, almost a faster way to get to the public markets. Um, and, and it's just another option, right? And I think optionality when it comes to providing liquidity and exit options for large private companies is always great. Yeah, of course. Uh, even though I read somewhere that, you know, some regulators are looking at it as a reverse listing or an acquisition. And then I think that may negate, negate the whole thing, right? Because, uh, you, you know, at least going forward, you'll be regulated or as a public company. But um, in any case, yes, great to have options, uh, you know, versus the past, right? And therefore, as you said, the people don't have to rush to do an IPO or they don't do IPOs all that quickly because they don't need to, right? Exactly. All right. Um, and you mentioned Coinbase as well. Obviously, this has been pretty big on, the, you know, on the cryptos front. Um, you work there as an in-house counsel. So what attracted you to switch back to an advisory from a corporate? Yeah, I was at Coinbase during a time of enormous and rapid growth even though it was right in the middle of when, what many people were calling the crypto winter. Uh, this was uh, mm -hmm. in 2018, 2019. Uh, it was an amazing experience, and I honestly never thought I'd be back at a law firm. I think my time at Coinbase, though, it's really given me a great perspective for when I interact with my clients today. Having been on their side of the table and understanding the challenges that they deal with that oftentimes outside counsel rarely sees, I think that's really allowed me to sharpen and hone my advice and counsel that I can provide. That's really what I love about my work right now at Baker McKenzie, using my deep expertise to work with exciting companies that are building amazing products and helping them successfully navigate through and around the complex legal issues surrounding the fintech and technology sectors while achieving uh, strategic priorities. Um, it, it's really working with all of these companies that drove me to um, uh, leave what was an amazing job at Coinbase to, to go back to an advisory role. All right, understood. So what is your view on the, the rise of Bitcoin in the last few months? Uh, some macroeconomists are saying, well, you know, maybe that is because investors are worried about inflation due to all these COVID government support packages around the world, uh, you know, so that kind of fueled the demand for it. Um, is it this or is that something else or there is no reason like always? <laughs> Probably it's the latter, but I'm not going to say that. I think Bitcoin has really proven itself this year to to be that rocket ship that we all thought it was back in 2017, right? Uh, I think this current rise is, though, very different from things back in 2017. In 2017, what we saw was the price really get pushed up because of retail interest, so individual investors. This time around, what we're seeing is significant institutional interest in the asset, and that's really driving the price up, not only including investment funds and advise, investment advisory firms, but also companies like Tesla and Square uh, are two examples that come to mind immediately. I think institutionals are likely realizing that Bitcoin should be a part of every diversified portfolio, and I think it also signals a public stamp of approval that will drive actually further adoption. It was never really a question in my mind that Bitcoin was here to stay. I think now we're just going to see how far this rocket ship can fly. Uh, so it's it's not something that I think uh, is 
is just the whim or uh, or uh, not going to last. All right. Even though, obviously, I think the view of Bitcoin is different than it used to be a couple of years ago, where people also talk about payments, right? And uh, the, the rise is not here because all of a sudden during the lockdowns, people started buying uh, stuff on Amazon with Bitcoins, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, use cases of Bitcoin is still lagging far behind the adoption, uh, I think. Um, and to be honest, I don't view Bitcoin as the best uh, method to transact online through crypto. Um, I view Bitcoin, as as many do, as more of a store of value. Um, and it's the underpinnings and, and the foundation, in my mind, of the entire crypto economy. So I think there will be probably uh, better methods for fast transactions online using cryptocurrencies. Um, but I think where where the market will go is really going to be determined by where Bitcoin goes. All right, understood. So I don't know if you can predict, right, especially being at the law firm. So you know, you advise your clients, it depends on the deal flow, on the transactions, but what is in store for you this year? Yeah, I'm excited to see the world emerge from the pandemic. I'm excited to see the effects of that as well on the fintech sector. What we really saw last year was the need for financial services institutions to have digital offerings, right? And we also saw the importance of the fintech sector last year as so many of our day-to-day purchasing and financial decisions had to move online. As the sector continues to grow, I'm excited to see its interaction with traditional or incumbent financial institutions. I'm also excited to see its interaction with other businesses, like I mentioned earlier, around partnering uh, with non-fintech and non-financial companies to provide new products. I think we're only at the beginning of seeing the impact that these large fintech companies are going to have on our lives. I'm looking forward to being a part of that journey as they change the way we make and execute financial decisions and transactions. On a more personal note, I think I'm looking forward to taking the family to a beach somewhere, getting out of the city and something we obviously weren't able to do last last year. So looking forward to being able to travel again. Yeah, I mean, let's let's hope so. So before we wrap up, uh, I have two easy questions for you. One is what's your favorite business or nonfiction book or a documentary? Um now, some people say, well, you know, we had all this time last year, so we tried to develop ourselves and we could read. Others say, I don't know what they're talking about because I had less time, right? <laughs> right. Because, you know, you know, I had to actually, I had to take care of the kids. Some, some countries, the schools were closed, all kinds of stuff. So it doesn't have to be recent, but something that you could recommend to listeners that would like to spend time on uh, reading up on things related to fintech or business. Well, it's hard to limit it to to just one, uh, Rudy. I think obviously Barbarians at the Gate. Uh, that book was really instrumental. Oh, yeah, it was instrumental in my decision to go to law school and get into M and A when I read it. Uh, I don't, I can't even remember when I read it so many years ago. I think more recently, uh, I've really enjoyed Bob Iger's book, The Ride of a Lifetime, uh, the Chairman mm-hmm. of Walt Disney. Uh, I'm also a big fan of a book called Creative Selection. Uh, it's a book that talks about how Apple approached the product design process during the era of Steve, Steve Jobs. And it's written by somebody who was at Apple uh, involved uh, with all of that at the time. So that was a really interesting book to me, just kind of getting a glimpse into 
how that company really viewed the design process and how that they viewed that as interacting with the rest of the business. Uh, it's a great book. Anybody interested in Apple computer or, or interested in design should, should definitely pick it up. So, I mean, it's funny about The Barbarians at the Gate. Of course, I have the book, but I did see the movie first, you know, and mm. it's a t- TV movie. But uh, in any case, very funny because it's a comedy, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually a comedy. So it is so funny. I recommend it to everyone. Uh, I think, you know, it's been a while, so I think it's free somewhere. Probably, but, uh, yeah. ve- you know, very funny. And uh, I think one of the three bidders was First Boston. That was obviously then merged with Credit Suisse and it was CSFB and then Credit Suisse. And there was a young associate there that I worked with later on who who was at some point head of U.S. investment banking, Brian Finn. To wrap up, what is the best way to reach out, right? And what kind of people are the best from your perspective to to reach out to help you achieve your objectives this year? Yeah, so I'm, I'm one of two Lawrence Lees at Baker McKenzie. I'm the one in Palo Alto, not the one in Hong Kong. Um, if you go to the website, I think all my details are there. I'm always happy to chat fintech and M&A. So uh, I, I love talking to founders who are building a new business. And I love talking to uh, heads of corp dev or, or heads of corporate legal as they're uh, dealing with challenges and transactions and, and strategy and, and things like that. So um, best way to reach out is just to shoot me an email or phone number. I'm always happy to chat FinTech, always happy to chat M&A. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much and good luck to Lawrence and Baker and McKinsey. Thank you very much for your time, Rudy. Thank you for listening to Voice of FinTech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.